gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Hey, everybody. Welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. And again, we're sending our best wishes to Jeff Baldwin, who we hope is back on this Studcast very soon. You found the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Get ready for over 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the Tennessee stud. Now, please welcome the originator of the Studcast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast, which you're about to hear about a very special one in only moments. Let's step back into the ring and back into time with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. What's up, Ron? Hey, how you doing, Dave? Uh, good doing to be uh, good to be on here again today. Uh, really looking forward to it. And uh, and as you mentioned, we do have a new Super Stud cast that actually came out yesterday. That one is with the great Jim Barnett. Kind of an odd subject. Maybe a lot of people don't like to tackle Barnett, but. Uh, this guy has probably as much wrestling history as anybody on the planet ever had. And, uh, and, uh, and I'm lucky. I got a lot of guys that got involved with me in this one. You're going to hear from uh, Jim Cornette. You'll hear from David Schultz, Kevin Sullivan, my brother's on it, Jimmy Golan, my cousin's on it, uh, Les Thatcher's on it, and Charlie Platt. There's so many on it, I can hardly remember the people that are involved in it. In both parts, and uh, this one is probably, it's by far the longest I've ever done. It's uh, going to be right in that four-hour range, and so I'm just I'm really proud of it. I think it's a really good one. Uh, Brian Last is uh, on there with us. Looking forward to hearing from fans once they get a chance to, to listen to this one. So, But today, we got a good trip today, too, man. Hey, where are we going? Let, let's get there. Okay. We're going to kind of start this one uh, where we left off last week with kind of the end of that match where Don Carson and me, Carson has turned babyface. He's been attacked by Homer O'Dell, uh, Tortanaka, and Norvell Austin, and they end up getting on me too. And Carson turns babyface in this match, and he comes and saves me, and uh, he raises my hand at the end of it. Uh, I'm the new Southeastern champion. Uh, we're going to find out what happened the following Friday night on May 21st between Carson and his one-on-one with Homer Odell. Uh, we're going to discover the highlights of another great TV show in this one today. We're going to discuss running Southeastern's first ever car racing track, uh, you know, because we had outgrown some schools, and uh, we were in an area that had one, and we were going to start to run in the summer of 1976 
pretty regularly up in Kentucky in a race car track. We're also going to talk and tell a, uh, an Australian story about uh, another racetrack. Uh, this time it's in, uh, it's in a little town in Australia, and it's about Dick Dunn and Don Carson, who are pivotal characters in our regular stud cast at this point. And they are the champions there, and we're going to tell a story there that took place in 1973. So we've got a couple of good stories in this one, and then uh, we've got a great learning tree question. And the uh, question is, uh, when fans rioted, did you think, because I was the booker, obviously, did you think, boy, they really love this rivalry, basically, and that you had captured them in the storyline to the point of emotional involvement, where they, even the fans were really ready to fight. So when that happened, uh, how did the wrestlers react to it? Were they really into it? And uh, did business increase the week after one of these rides? Great questions, because we've talked about a couple of riots in the last couple of studcasts. So the, looking forward to doing that one. Let's begin today where we stopped, like I said last episode, with Homer and his men that were attacking Don Carson. And as I just finished pinning him at the end of the Southeastern Championship match, uh, they'd been standing outside, both Homer and Tanaka, and threatening to come in the ring. And they did. As soon as the match was over and my hand was raised, basically by the referee, they brushed past me and they attacked Don Carson. And they did a job on him pretty quickly there. And Don was bleeding pretty badly. So then I'm standing there like a dummy. I'm holding the championship belt. I'm kind of amazed at what's going on, just like the fans in the crowd. The crowd gets quiet. It's like, uh, what in the heck is going on? You got these heels fighting each other. So. It produced what was dead silence in an amphitheater that had thousands of people in it. And when they turned around and started on me, the fans started screaming for help. They were looking at the dressing room back there, hoping my brother, Jimmy, somebody's going to come to help me. But, uh, you know, nobody knows what's going on. I think sometimes when you're in the main event, a lot of wrestlers have left the building and they're not going to be there. So Don Carson finally gets on his feet. They're all three beating the hell out of me. Now I'm bleeding. Carson gets on his feet and he's behind them. They don't see him. And uh, he loads his glove. <laughs> the, and kind of like everybody in that uh, amphitheater, they went, wow. Uh, they started coming up to their feet. And then they kind of realized what's about to happen here, that he's about to maybe save me. And boy, he did. He tore into them, man. Bodies were flying. He had those guys flying all over. That crowd exploded. It was amazing. Uh, and the man they hated the most in Southeastern wrestling had just turned babyface right in front of their eyes. They did not expect it. And uh, boy, you could tell in the way they were accepting it. Homer and his men, they took off running to the dressing room. And it left me and Carson standing in the ring, basically face to face. And, uh, you know, the roar kind of went down because now fans are wondering, whoa, whoa, now what's going to happen here? And uh, Carson went over. He picked up my belt that I had dropped when they attacked me, and he brought it back to me, stood there looking at me, and then he handed me the belt and he raised my hand. Wow. I mean, there had been a bunch of big explosions that night. That crowd had seen everything. When he handed me that belt, it was the biggest pop of the night. It was amazing. And uh, we shook hands and we left the ring together. So before we talk about the card on the following Friday night, I want to talk about the fantastic TV that took place with all this video 
of this match the next day. And I expected a very lively audience when I went to television that day. And, uh, boy, I wasn't disappointed. You could hear the buzz in the studio before the first match on television, before the program even started. And I noticed that the crowd out there, I don't know who was handling the door that day, but they had let in more people than I'd ever seen in the studio at this point. They were standing along the walls on three sides of the ring. It was an amazing crowd there. So Les opened the show, just like he always did. And then he asked right off the top of the show, which was most unusual, he asked Homer, Tanaka, and Austin to come out and join him at the set. Then when they got there, he asked the director to roll a piece of video that had been done earlier in the morning. It was a spectacular piece of video, really, and it was highly edited. So it was going to show what had happened in the events leading up to this thing that happened between Carson and Homer. Homer started to interrupt Les. As soon as they started to roll the video and Les just turned to him very bluntly and said, shut up. You just watch and listen. Uh, he said, a Southeastern official is going to be talking over this, not you, Homer. So the video's rolling. And uh, the video starts with the uh, Tanaka. Attacking Rob in the match prior to the one that uh, the the focus is on, Rob had gone out just to help Butch Malone get back to the dressing room and Tanaka attacks him. And, it you know, the official that's talking over it, he brought out the fact that Rob wasn't even in the match. And he was simply trying to help an injured wrestler and that obviously Homer and, and Tanaka had something in mind for maybe the next match that was upcoming. You know, because uh, Tanaka went out, he knocked Rob down, Rob hit his head, and we had to carry Rob out. Uh, he wasn't able to wrestle. I came back and took his place. The next part of this video showed Homer coming to the ring with Tanaka when that Southeastern title match was supposed to start. Carson's already in the ring, and Homer gets on the microphone. He demands that Tora Tanaka get this title shot, that Carson's opponent has been injured. And it just makes sense, God. Tanaka's not God. He gave him his big spiel, but it didn't really work for him. So then um, Les Thatcher shows up at the ring, and uh, it shows this part. And it, he's, uh, you know, Les uh, tells him uh, basically that, uh, you know, he's talked to a Southeastern official about what to do in this situation. Rob's not able to come. And uh, because I'm not on that card and I happen to be there, I happen to have my gear, I go to the ring. I'm going to get the match. From that point on, I kind of just uh, earlier in the program here explained what happened from then on. Uh, it was pretty amazing events, one right after another. So Les then finally turns to Homer, and he asked him if he could explain why he and his men had tried to take over the company at the night before. Basically, got involved in all kinds of matches and then ended up attacking two people in a match they weren't supposed to be in. And Homer really had no answer. And he, and he just kind of dropped his head and he turned to leave the set. It's like, oh boy, you know, they, they're really coming down on me big time. And Les says, whoa, 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 no. He says, come back here because the uh, Southeastern officials aren't through with you yet. So he told him there that, that they'd had a big discussion, the, the officials with Southeastern, about firing all three of them, uh, Homer, Tanaka, and Austin, because of all the things that they had done the night before. He said, but then the officials came up with a better idea. And he says, I want you to stay right here with me because we're going to go to commercial break. And after the commercial break, we're going to have the interview 
And the, then you're going to find out what the, your punishment is going to be. So Homer hangs around there. We're coming out of the commercial break. And it was the first interview slot in every program, usually. And it wasn't this one. And each one of those programs, the first interview slot, it showed the actual card on what's called the Vitafont. The names came up on the screen. And the fans in the studio had monitors that they could watch as well. And so they saw what the card was. And then Les would read those names off to the fans. Uh, even at home, they saw it across the screen, and Les would read it live. So he starts reading it. The director, really sharp, Bill Kincaid again, he's, he gets the card. He does a split screen so that the card is on one side of the screen, and Homer O'Dell's face is on the other side of the screen. He wants to get his reaction to this card as it's being announced. Uh, Les starts announcing the card as it shows up on the screen. Homer's face is there, and Homer's seeing it for the first time. He doesn't know what the card is. There were three main events. Les then called out the names of the, who's in the opening match as the names came up on the screen, Ron Wright versus Don Lambrick. Second match, Butch Malone and Mike Stallings against the Avengers. The third match shows up. And uh, he says, you know, this is a Southeastern Championship match, Dick Steinborn against Ron Fuller for the championship. Then the second main event, he announces it. As soon as the names come up on the screen, the Southeastern Tag Championship match toward Tanaka and Norvell Austin, managed by Homer Odell, against the champions Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden. So crowd has been unusually quiet as Les is reading these matches off. They usually got pretty involved in, in the actual seeing the matches. But I think they're waiting. Les then paused. He had one match left to announce on the card, and he turned to Homer. <laughs> and they, they, they left the screen blank. And uh, you got Homer's face on one side, and the screen is blank. He doesn't know what the card is. And Les turns to him and says, do you want to know what the Southeastern officials have decided to do with you today, Homer? <laughs> so Homer's like, well, yeah, he shook his head like, well, I guess so. I mean, I'm, I'm here. What, what do you expect me to do? All of a sudden, they flashed up the main event. <laughs> and uh, there's Homer's face on one side of it, and uh, the crowd exploded. Uh, the main event was Don Carson against Homer O'Dell all by himself. Oh, my. You could not hear Les even announce the names over the roar of the crowd in the studio. They were waiting on seeing if this was going to happen. If Carson was going to wrestle, one heel was going to wrestle against another. And Carson, at this point, is really no longer a heel. He's really changed his ways. So, as I said, uh, they couldn't hardly hear him uh, less. You know, I guess they could hear him at home very well because he's right there by his microphone. But the crowd, I'd never seen the crowd that loud before when they just announced the card. So Don Carson's on the personality profile that same day, later in the show. And it was done live right in front of the studio audience. And when he came out to sit down in the chair next to Les, he got a tremendous ovation. You could see that fans were really into the fact that he's going to take care of Homer Odell. And he really, during this personality profile, he showed exactly just what a great worker he was. It was one of those tremendously humble interviews. He started out by apologizing to the fans themselves for all the rotten things he had done since he'd come there. You know, and I mean, he could pretty much laid out maybe six or eight of them. He had it all prepared of what he was going to say. He apologized to me and Rob. And he told a little story about how much my dad had meant to him 
when he was a young wrestler and just got started, how dad took an interest in him and, and got him rolling in the business. Uh, he apologized to Jimmy Golden and told Jimmy on camera there, he says, I loved your daddy, Bill Golden. You know, he says, I still love him. We've been friends for 30 years, you know. And then he finally says, uh, I'd like to get Ron Wright to come out here. So, you know, Ron had been through all this hell with Carson and the superstars. So Ron came to the set and, and Carson made a, a heartfelt apology. I mean, it was an amazing apology. And he told Ron how bad he felt about putting that bounty out on him to begin with and how he hated the fact that, that Ron had got his eye busted and then both eyes blacked eventually. And, and he just basically uh, almost got down on his knees and he begged for Ron Wright's forgiveness for, you know, what I've done to you personally. I mean, I, I'm just, uh, I, I hate it, you know, and I feel terrible about it. And uh, by the time this profile was finished, you could see tears in people's eyes out there in the studio listening to it, you know? So it was a pretty amazing little uh, personality profile. Doesn't sound like Don Carson we know, but what happened the following Friday night, Ron? Well, Ron Wright got a strong win uh, over Don Lambert in that very first match. The Avengers, that was the former superstars. They're back now. They had lost their mask. had been pulled off. They came back as the Avengers. They had a great match with two great young stars, Mike Stallings and Butch Malone, and uh, they sneaked out a win over the youngsters. They got a win because they were headed basically for one of their last shots of the Southeastern tag titles. Uh, Dick Steinborn and I had a first-ever all-babyface Southeastern championship match. Uh, never happened in Southeastern before that two baby faces are wrestling for the championship. It was a 45 minute time limit match and we wrestled to a 45 minute draw. It was a tremendous match. The fans just got in it, into it. Great. Four or five times the, we got a standing ovation from the crowd. We ended up shaking hands after a lot of moves. There was no punches, not a single one in 45 minutes of wrestling. And when it was over, we shook hands. And everybody in that sold out, practically sold out the amphitheater that night, stood and applauded. Uh, it was the first of three straight Southeastern Championship matches that I'm going to have against Dick Steinborn. Robert and Jimmy were in the next match. They won by disqualification over Tanaka and Norvell Austin. Tanaka and Austin had the match won when the Avengers came down. And jumped in the ring. I mean, Tanaka had Jimmy down. Uh, he was on top of him. Jimmy was not going to kick out. They had really punished Jimmy. And the Avengers just jumped in the ring. They didn't do anything, but they jumped in the ring. Referee's got to stop the match. He rang the bell. He disqualified Tanaka and Austin for the interference. And what happened was the Avengers kept Homer and his men from winning the tag championships right there. So, well, you know, they're going to get a shot the next week at the champions, Rob Fuller and Jimmy Golden. And so once they, the Tanaka and Austin uh, and Homer standing out there realized what the hell they had done, they he, Homer sicked his boys on them and they got into a hell of a fight. And Jimmy and Rob took their belts and went to the dressing room and they fought for a little while. And I think the Avengers finally they took powder and they, they, they ran to the dressing room. The third main event. Last match of the night, Don Carson against Homer Odell. And Homer arrived at the ring like you would expect. He brought Tanaka and Austin with him. And when they were told to leave ringside, he refused. He told them, no, you're not going anywhere. 
I guess so, because he knows he's got no shot in this match. So after quite a bit of time of stalling, Les Thatcher came down to ringside, and he had the announcer announce that Southeastern officials wanted to tell Homer and his two men that if they didn't leave ringside immediately, that they would be fired from Southeastern wrestling. And that if they came back to the ring before the match was over, they'd be fired for that. So the crowd loved it. They went crazy, man. (laughs) Finally, here goes Tanaka and Austin off to the dressing room, and the match finally gets started. And uh, Homer did his best, naturally, to run, keep his distance as much as he could. Uh, Old Don finally got him with his peanut butter glove, man. He loaded it up, and he got some revenge on Homer, that's for sure. In fact, for the first time in Southeastern, Homer bled that night. People had never seen him bleed, and uh, and I think they really enjoyed the fact he was. The fans went nuts as Don just pinned him right in the middle of the ring, and it was over. But then, as was expected, now, you know, they had said that if you come back before the end of the match, you're going to be fired. Well, the bell had rung. The match was over. Well, here comes Tanaka and Austin, just like everybody probably figured was going to happen. And they kind of cornered Don, and he loaded his glove, but he never got the chance to use it. They were all three on him, and uh, and he was bleeding again. So the referee kept ringing the bell, trying to stop the match, trying to get it, them to leave, to let up, to get somebody to do something. And he had to get involved, the referee, and they just grabbed him and threw him over the top rope. And he took a nasty bump on the concrete out there, and he didn't get up. So finally, Ron Wright, of all people, comes down to the ring to rescue Carson. And he put a good old Tennessee dog whooping on the three of them. Carson and and Wright back-to-back then uh, ran the three of them to the dressing room. So uh, it uh, it was quite a night of wrestling for fans out there. They really, really enjoyed it. Amphitheater was almost full. That's incredible. How many pints of blood do you think Don Carson lost over the years? Oh, gosh. <laughs> he bled quite a bit, but I don't know if he lost as much as some of the guys he wrestled against, to be honest with you. I think they probably lost more than he did. No doubt. All right, but what was hey, that? It had to be huge. What kind of crowd was that on the, on that Friday night? Oh, it was it was over 5,000. It was the first time in the Knoxville in the Chilhowee Park that uh, Southeastern had gone over 5,000 people. Uh, and all the cities around Knoxville were doing tremendous business as well. You know, buildings were becoming too small just about everywhere we went. We drew more than 15,000 total fans that week. And I'd raised the general mission ticket prices at, at the park about uh, 50 cents each, uh, but with a gross house like that, probably grossed $2,000 more just by that small increase in ticket prices. It made sense because we were just about to start selling out the biggest venue they had out there, the amphitheater. Talent that week make between eight and $900. Big money for 1976. Uh, had a crew that was really, really happy with business. Oh, no doubt. You mentioned something earlier about matches at a racetrack. What's up with that? Well, this is kind of has to do with venues becoming too small. You know, I'm still looking for larger venues to hold crowds that uh, we were beginning to draw. Uh, High school gyms and where we were predominantly going were beginning to fill up. But 30 minutes before match time, I would look out there and the building is just packed. And there's more people outside than inside. 
So uh, it's in the summertime, we were lucky. We would move instead of the high school gyms out into the football stadiums, and we would draw thousands more people. It was, you know, because obviously the football stadium hold a lot more people than the gym. So in some cities, I couldn't get into the high school. Uh, and in those cities, if, if there were any size to them, I, I, had to, I looked for other possibilities. I wanted to run in, in smaller cities. Uh, the, anything that was big enough that I thought would draw two, 3,000 people, I wanted to have matches, live matches there. And wrestling was becoming real hot at this point. I mean, television audience was huge. And it didn't make any difference where we went. We were selling out. It was just, it was going to happen. So uh, when we went to these smaller cities, we were even bigger stars to those people than we were to people that saw us on the streets of Knoxville. And they didn't get a lot of live sports events in these small cities up in Kentucky and in Virginia. We were the biggest thing that came there, you know. I mean, we were the biggest event that ever come to the town, you know. And I really felt good about what I was doing. And and I felt good about the, bringing something special to people that would have never got to see it otherwise. To see live wrestling with all the stars that we had on that television program, it was a memorable moment, fans. And uh, obviously, the wrestlers loved it just as much as I did. You know, they could tell by the fans and the reaction of the people that the fans were really into it. So the matches were really easy because the fans had never seen live matches. And uh, and I had to try my best to keep the guys kind of in line and keep them away from a lot of violence. It wasn't necessary. Uh, I used to always say to them that, you know, when we're in these small cities, I, I'd say, guys, this isn't Knoxville. They haven't seen everything. <laughs> and and we don't need to give it all to them tonight. You know what I mean? we you got to keep this thing basically wrestling and uh, not get too overboard because it wasn't necessary. They, would, they were popping and the roof were coming off those gyms from all the reaction of people. It was just extremely easy. So let's talk about this racetrack. There was a city up there called Corbin, Corbin, Kentucky. It's on Interstate 75 for people that run up that interstate. It's about 100 miles north of Knoxville, about halfway between Knoxville and Lexington, Kentucky. It's a famous city for one thing in particular, and oddly enough, it's the home of Harlan Sanders, the originator of Kentucky Fried Chicken. And when I first time I ever went there, I went to eat at the original restaurant because I liked that chicken anyway. And I said, by golly, I, you know, this is where the colonel started the whole thing. And that, oddly enough, that restaurant is still there today. It's still open today after all these years. I mean, the colonel's gone, obviously, but his product is still for sale. An amazing story, that chicken itself. But there's Corbin, little town in Kentucky. Uh, it's one of those rare cities where I couldn't get in the high school gym. Like I said, I, I heard they had a racetrack called the Corbin Speedway. So I went there just like I went to a lot of different high schools trying to get in the door, I was recognized instantly. <laughs> and, and I mean, that's the, that's just uh, being very blunt about it. I mean, we were recognized, every wrestler in, in Knoxville. You couldn't go anywhere. You could not go to a restaurant. You, you couldn't go anywhere on the streets in which people didn't ask for your autograph, didn't want to talk to you about wrestling, uh, it got to be where you were like an actor almost that you had to kind of, uh, I would go to the fair and put on um, disguise. 
Well, so because I, I could not go to the fair otherwise, I couldn't stay there five minutes. The, the people would just it would be a mob around me. So, you know, it, it was it was really re- hot. Wrestling was extremely hot. So I talked to the owner of this Speedway for about 30 minutes. Within 30 minutes, we got a deal. Uh, we're going to have wrestling at, at a racetrack. And obviously, this is the biggest venue in Corbin, Kentucky. I mean, <laughs> this this racetrack holds about eight to 10,000 people. And it's much bigger, obviously, than any high school gym or any stadium. But wrestling at a racetrack is a real experience. It's It's not like wrestling in the gym. It's totally different. You know, everyone sits on just one side of the ring. That's in the grandstand because that's the way races are. There's a grandstand and everybody sits in the same place. Uh, This Corbin track, as I said, held about 8,000 people, maybe even more. It was a dirt track, as most of the small tracks are in America. Uh, And certainly back in 1976, you know, most of the tracks, period, were dirt tracks. And it obviously had the tilted surfaces and the banks in it where you had the turns. uh, And there was a little bit of bank even in the straightaways. It's built like a racetrack. What we did is we set the ring. I had him set the ring in the middle of the grandstand, in the center of the grandstand. And I got the ring as close to the wall as I could possibly get it because I wanted the fans to be really near. I wanted the fans to feel close to this. Uh, And you needed that for wrestling. And besides that, you didn't have to worry about the riot because they got the fence there that Mm -hmm. protects the fans from the automobiles flying into them, right? So, you know, that was great. We could get as close to them and not have to fear somebody cutting us or something wild and crazy happening. So we set the ring, middle of the track, right in the middle of the grandstands. We had to build two little small platforms because the bank was still there. It's a racetrack. And uh, it was a slight drop off. Then the ring needed to be level. You couldn't wrestle in a ring that wasn't level. So we built these two small platforms. We put them on the, under the ring posts on the far side of the ring, the far side from the bank, from the big grandstand, and leveled out the ring. So it was a kind of an odd looking thing when you were on the track. And that's where we dressed was out in the infield of the track. And then we went from there out to the ring. It was a totally different experience. So after we got the the ring set up and all this stuff ready, uh, the grandstand in this particular racetrack was covered, which that's kind of unusual, but it was good. The amphitheater in Knoxville had no covering over it. So we didn't have to worry about rain in Corbin. It didn't affect the crowd, but it affected the wrestlers. I can tell you that. Because it was a dirt track, whenever you got went outside, let's say you just stepped outside you got dirt on your wrestling shoes, and when you got back in the ring, that dirt stayed on the wrestling mat. Mm. So you can imagine the mat would get really dirty during the course of the night. And if you were in the last match, you felt like you were working in sand sometimes. And if you got thrown out, you came back in the ring not only with dirt on your boots, but with dirt on your body. You know, And then if it rained, the dirt was mud. I mean, it was even a worse situation. So. Right. Best part of all of it, though, is that sometimes in that racetrack, we would draw 4,000 or more people, and uh, the city's population was only uh, about 5,000. So we were drawing huge crowds, and it was worth it. So a little bit of dirt on your body, man, when you're going to be wrestling before 4,000 or 5,000 people, 
in a little town 100 miles north of Knoxville. And the guys were going to be paid that night. They were going to make $200, $250, $300 in 1976. You could buy a car (laughs) or use car for that in 1976. It was big money. So it was well worth it. No doubt. You talked about being recognized. Your six foot nine inch frame didn't help you in that regard because you were probably taller than everybody around you. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, I was like standing on stilts, you know I mean? Everybody saw me and didn't make any difference where I went. I was accustomed to that since I'd been a basketball player at the university of Miami, but, uh, it was even more so once I got started to wrestling and then obviously everybody saw me, but, uh, it was a good experience. Uh, the racetrack deal was good. It's probably about time for a break. And after the break, I'm going to tell another racetrack story, oddly enough. And this one's going to be in Australia. We're excited to announce Ron has finally decided to do the most requested Super Studcast yet, number 29. This one is going to be a deep dive into one of the top promoters in the history of professional wrestling, the incomparable Jim Barnett at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. The unforgettable ride in part one will begin in 1949 with Barnett's first job in the sport, cover his rise to power in American wrestling, and the sex scandal that sent him fleeing to continued success on another continent, Australia. Part two will begin in 1973 after he has left Australia and returns to America, where he'll become the most powerful promoter in the world in the 1970s. This entire Super Studcast number 29 will be the longest ever done in almost four hours, and still only $2.99. You'll learn the one-of-a-kind story of the most fascinating history wrestling has ever seen. It will also include numerous segments of memories and stories from wrestling personalities such as Jim Cornette, David Schultz, Kevin Sullivan, Robert Fuller, Les Thatcher, Jimmy Golden, and Charlie Platt, former Southeastern wrestling commentator. Saddle up and take the ride into wrestling history that few have dared to tell. Get it now at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. All right, it's David Summers once again looking forward to the Australian story today with Don Carson and Dick done is that one coming up next run yeah i think i want to go ahead and talk about it and uh this one is uh this is a pretty darn good story here i'm gonna do one actually because of i'm doing this super stud cast on jim barnett and he spent 10 years in australia was the biggest promoter they ever had there by far uh drew unbelievable crowds in a country that was not accustomed to wrestling as a tribute to Jim, I'm going to do an Australian story every week for the next four studcasts, as long as the Jim Barnett uh, before the, the next super studcast comes along. So today I'm going to do an Australian story. I'm, it's going to take a couple of minutes to set this up <laughs> to begin with. The match is going to take place in Queensland and Australia, which is the northern part of Australia. Uh, Sydney, Melbourne lies on the southern tip. Uh, a little north of there, you have uh, Sydney, and north of there, a pretty good distance is Brisbane. And north of Brisbane was a town called Rockhampton. So Carson and Dunn, they are the Austro-Asian tag champions for World Championship Wrestling. That's the operation in Australia, and uh, the belts they were called Austro-Asian because uh, the Austro was for, short for Australian. 
but the belts were defended in Asia too because Barnett ran in Hong Kong and in Malaysia and in other countries. The belts had a and we're important belts. Uh, Scott Casey and I, who is a good young wrestler, he probably recognizable to a lot of fans that are listening to this. Scott Casey, a young Scott Casey and I are wrestling against Carson and Dunn at this track. It's not a race track. Well, it is. A, it's a horse race track, Surrey track. And I don't know if you know what a Surrey is, Dave, but a Surrey is like a little two-wheel carriage that's attached to a single horse. Right. And, uh, and a guy rides it like a buggy, you know? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. it's a Surrey track, and then they run cars on it, too. And the tracks were dirt, you know? I mean, you had to have it for the horses. But at this point, they, you know, they didn't have a, a lot of tracks in Australia that were paved. So uh, and, and Australia, just so everybody gets a feel for what's going on, racing is huge in Australia. I guess that's the only way to put it. It's a big-time sport in Australia, any kind of racing. I don't care what it is. So at this point, uh, my father and Barnett, they're partners in Australia. And uh, Dad wanted to do something that Barnett had never done before. He wanted to run smaller cities, kind of like we did in America. We call them spot shows on nights that the wrestlers would normally be off, uh, you know, because in Australia, you only work the major cities. You worked Adelaide. You worked Perth. You work Melbourne, you work Sydney, and you work Brisbane. But there were nights when you were off. So Dad says, you know, hey, Barnett, we need to make as much money as we can here. And the, the crews were there, unlike in the United States. The wrestlers were on guarantees. You were going to make a certain amount of money each week, no matter what they drew, and no matter how many times you worked. How many times, how much you worked or how little you worked made no difference. You were on a guarantee. So dad says, you know, they're on a guarantee and they got a night off. Let's try one of these little cities somewhere. So Jim says, I'm a boy. I can just hear him. Uh, yeah, okay. We'll try. So here we go. Uh, we head out to, <laughs> to Rockhampton, a city north of Brisbane, way up in the an area where the crocodiles are. I mean, you know, you're you're pretty far north in Australia. And Dad, why he selected this town, I have no idea. But there's some problems involved with this. And the first problem that's discovered is that there is no paved road in 1973 that goes all the way from Brisbane to Rockhampton. It's probably 600 miles. And they got to haul a ring up there. And about 300 of it's paved highway. And then you got to take a dirt road. And you got hardly any gas stations. So you've got to load not only the ring into your truck, but you've got to load gasoline that's going to help you get there once you get off the paved road and start onto the dirt road. Right. Isn't it bad experience for the crew that's putting up the ring? <laughs> I mean, this is like a two-day journey, a ridiculous effort on their part. And that wasn't the only problem. In February, it's summertime in Australia because they're below the equator. Their seasons are exactly opposite ours. And uh, this city's in the northern part of the country, which would mean in America it'd be colder there in the winter. But uh, it's summertime in the winter down there. And the further you go north, the closer the equator you are. So it's really hot in this Rockhampton. And not only is it really hot, it happens to be the monsoon season there, which means it's raining. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and dad doesn't know this. You know, he picks out a city and uh, he has no idea what weather's like up there. He'd never been up there. So here we go. We're going to fly to Rockhampton and we're going to be in torrential rains. I mean, uh, that time of year, it rained every day, all day. So the wrestlers, many of them, they'd been wrestling there for many years. There were guys in the crew from Italy, Mario Milano, and from Greece, uh, Spiros Arion, that had been wrestling in Australia on and off for 10 years. They they weren't accustomed to working in these small towns, for one thing, and they weren't accustomed to losing their night off that they normally got paid for free. So, so you know, the, here's the deal. They're, they're not accustomed to working anything but the big cities. And now they're loading up into a plane to go to a little small town on a night they wouldn't normally be working. And they knew that this wasn't Jim's idea. It was my dad's idea. So I had a lot of wrestlers giving me some bad looks that day. You know, like, what in the hell are we doing, right? (laughs) Where are we going? And we'd been to Brisbane. And we'd flown into Brisbane already on a Wednesday night. We're going back up here on a Sunday. And when we got to Brisbane, we did three TVs back to back and then stayed and went down and worked in the arena in the big building that night. So, you know, I mean, guys were like, we're going further north than Brisbane. Why? You know, so uh, they weren't happy. Needless to say, none of them was happy. And, um, and I was the guy that was responsible for the journey. You know, so it wasn't a good deal for me. So we're all used to flying each trip. Big jet. There's two major airlines in Australia. We flew everywhere. You had to because you lived in Sydney and and everything was a distance away and you needed to get there and couldn't drive. It wasn't like a territory. You're working a country. When you're in a territory, your longest trip may be 200 miles. Well, hell, it's 3,000 miles to Perth. You're like working in Los Angeles. You can't drive there. So we flew every day. So uh, there's a lot of bad attitudes that morning, and we're sitting out there getting ready to go get on the plane, expecting the jet. And when we, when they release us from the terminal and they send us out to the plane, it's a prop. It's a two-engine prop. It is, it's only about the bottom of it's only about two feet off the ground. It looked like one of those planes that you land in the water, you know, and the guys are like, Oh, geez, man, they're bitching, man. Oh, God, I don't want to get on there. You got to kid me. We're going to fly on this? And it was just us on the plane. It was a small plane, and there was only about 12 of us wrestling, and we filled the whole plane. It had probably 12 seats in it, and they were close and small because it was a small little plane, right? And uh, didn't have any air conditioning. (laughs) It's the summertime. And, uh, you know, it's got these tiny little seats and we're all crammed in there together. and We're sweating and everybody's unhappy to be on the damn thing. And then at the worst, it's three hour flight instead of, <laughs> instead of that usual hour, hour and a half to Brisbane. This is three hours. So they're all looking at me now. I'm like, ah, Ron, you know, and I, I, I'm wanting to say, guys, hey, look, it's my dad's idea. I didn't book this thing. So we're about halfway there. And we start to hit some rain and some turbulence, you know. I mean, we're flying into monsoon country. <laughs> we don't know it. Nobody knows it. So uh, the plane's starting to buck, man. <laughs> it's starting to buck and jerk around. And guys are gone looking out the windows. And oh, and the windows were small. You had to bend down and look out. The plane was just a crazy plane the way it was made. 
So everybody now is starting to get a little concerned. And then when we come to land, (laughs) the plane's so close, the bottom of it's so close, your feet look like you're going to hit the ground. And half the guys on there scream before the plane finally touched down. It was like, damn, are we going to run? We're going to land on our feet here, man. We're going to crash. It was it was not a good flight. So we get off the plane. Before we get off, it's raining. And it's been raining for an hour, hour and a half of this flight. And I mean really raining. I mean, uh, you know, uh, monsoon rain isn't like a normal rainstorm. It was really coming down. So they opened a little door for us to get off. And there's only about 100 feet to the terminal. But it was raining. So there's no umbrellas. There's no, uh, you know, there's no uh, alleyway. No, no, no way you can get from the plane to the terminal like we do in, had in America at that point. So we're all soaking wet. By the time we break it that 100 feet and we got our bags and everything, every one of us is just soaking wet. It was like, uh, welcome to Rockhampton. It's like, so I would, I wanted to go home right then. God, man, they all hate me. So we check into a motel. There's no hotel in this town. It's not big enough for a hotel. And all of us go to sleep because we get there fairly early in the day and there's no place to go. And it's raining so damned hard. You couldn't get there if you wanted to. You can't see across the street what the stores are. It's raining so hard. So, uh, there's one more element to this story I want to add. Okay, uh, Australia happens to be the home of some of the most deadly spiders and snakes in the world. They have bad boy snakes and bad boy spiders. They make our spiders and poisonous snakes look like nothing. So being from America, you know, none of us had what a deadly spider looked like. They didn't. You didn't know the difference between one that's deadly and one that's not. You know, so. We'll get to that again later in the story. But anyway, that's that's what it's like in Australia. So we're ready to go down to the building. And we meet about 6 o'clock in a conference room that's just off of the motel lobby, little motel lobby there. And it's still raining. It's not stopped raining since we got there. It, and it ain't going to stop. You can tell by looking at the sky. So uh, several taxis line up there to pick us up. We get in these taxis, and we expect they're going to roll us down to the arena, the nearby arena, and everything will be cool. And uh, first thing you know, I look outside, and, and we're driving out into the country where there's no nothing. You know, I'm like, what in the hell? Are, where is this building? And then you see off in the distance, you see this giant grandstand. <laughs> I finally realized, damn, this has got to be a <laughs> baseball stadium or or a racetrack or something, right? So the taxi driver, he he tells us that this is the Rockhampton racetrack, you know, and uh, and that's where they race horses and where they have these Surrey races. And so um, we get out of the taxi and, uh, and we're wet again, trying to get into the back part of this big grandstand. Underneath is the dressing rooms. And they shuttle us into two dingy, dark dressing rooms. And, uh, each of the dressing rooms only has two showers in them, and they don't have any lights in the showers. You can't even turn the lights on, so you can't hardly see in the dressing room, and there's no light in the shower at all. Wow. So, you know, it's not a great atmosphere. And the guys are looking at me again. like, God, man, this is getting worse. You know, they're hating me. <laughs> so I'm like, I want to go, man, it's not my fault. This is my dad's idea. 
So just when everybody thought it couldn't get any worse, the bell rang. Scott Casey and I were in the main event with Carson and Dunn. And so I walked down through this long tunnel. Uh, the guy that's in the first match, uh, I can't remember who it was. It might have been Austin Idol when he was Dennis McCord. But Dennis McCord's in the first match, and I follow him down through this tunnel. And the tunnel ends up at the track. And I hadn't thought about it. Then I, I look out this little opening and I see the ring and it's sitting on the track, obviously. And it's raining like crazy, you know, and it's been raining all day. So, you know, the mat's wet. The ground has got mud six inches deep all around it. And you couldn't see the crowd because they're sitting up above you. And all the boys, I know what I was expecting, and I'm sure they did too. I thought, my God, with all this rain and this horrible weather, there won't be 20 people up there, you know? <laughs> and when Idol left that tunnel and then the crowd could see the two wrestlers that were going to wrestle, I just about fell on my face. What a tremendous roar. There was probably 10,000 people, wow. you know, sitting in those stands. <laughs> and, uh, I said, gosh almighty. And it was raining so hard that when you got into the ring, you couldn't see the stands. So how in the hell could they see you out there? Yeah, so it was it was like crazy, man. You know, how they how can this place be sold out? So we get to the main event. Carson and Dunn are out there. And you don't wear your wrestling jacket because you're going to get it destroyed. Uh, you don't want to wear your wrestling shoes because the mud's so deep getting to the ring that it ruins your shoes. It gets way up over your ankles, deep in, in mud. So when you got on the apron of the ring, they had put two towels there, and you scraped your feet off and stomped them off as good as you could. But by the time we wrestled in the last match, all these guys had been coming in and out of the ring. The ring was half full of mud. I mean, when you took a bump or you went down, you got muddy. It was just a horrible experience. Like, God, this is horrible to work in. Besides that, you couldn't do any spots that you normally would in a regular match. You couldn't do things off the ropes because the mat's so slippery and the mud's all in there. You might break your leg. You might have a real accident. Somebody get hurt badly. So you just were confined to doing a few little simple moves in the match. So Don Carson, <laughs> big Don, had a great attitude, and Carson always had a great attitude, and he was playful. He wanted to mess around, you know, and this crowd, they hadn't seen a whole lot of stuff that during the course of the night that would really pop them. So Carson gets a hold of me. He says, throw me out the ring and follow me. <laughs> so I was like, oh, are you kidding, Don? You know, I mean, I no, I don't want to get out there in that mud. You know, come on. He says, throw me out and follow me. So I chunk him through the ropes, and he goes splat on his back in that mud. <laughs> I get out, and he starts running down the track. <laughs> and and the crowd up there, I don't even know how they can see us. I can't see them, but somehow they're seeing us. And they're screaming. Now he's really got him going. And <laughs> he slows down, and I catch him. He, they had the rail for the horse race and the stuff. So there's the rail there. He said, throw me over the rail. <laughs> So I threw him over the rail and then I obviously got to crawl over the rail and go get him. And when I get out there, he says, slam me. But I was like, oh, no. <laughs> you 
you know, I mean, he could talk as loud as he wanted to because the fans can't hear you. They can't hear you above the roar of the rain, much less uh, right. out yeah. there in the middle of nowhere. So he says, slam me. <laughs> so, so he had that blonde hair, and I picked him up, <laughs> and I slammed him. He disappeared in the mud. I couldn't find him. He was gone. Don was gone. <laughs> I had to dig in with my hands to feel for him. I got a leg. Oh, there's a leg. I pulled out his leg. When I pulled him out and I got him up to his feet, you could not see any white hair, his old blonde hair. He was totally, he was a mud man. He, he had nothing. He was solid mud. <laughs> the, the crowd out there, they're going crazy, man. This is too much. And then he says, throw me back across the rail. So I toss him back over the rail and he starts trying to run back. He's falling down. He's just, oh, it's ridiculous. So we get back into the ring and pretty quickly we do a finish. We just, you know, we just end it. And uh, obviously the fans seem to have a hell of a good time. It was a monster crowd. So we go back to the dressing room and I'm going to end this pretty quickly, but we go to the dressing room. Nobody is taking a shower. Uh, there's no light in the dressing room shower anyway. But, I mean, we're we're muddy. I mean, you know, we're not like the guys that worked those early matches. You know, they just got a little mud on them, and they would just got a taxi and went back and uh, showered off in the motel. But right. we're so muddy, we can't get in a taxi. Ain't no taxi driver going to let us get in there. So I get in the shower, and I start showering. And, and I tell the guy that's working there, I said, Get a light bulb for this shower, man. Get a light bulb in the shower. And he says, okay, okay. He goes to get the light bulb, and I get in the shower. He comes back, and he reaches in there, and he screws in the light bulb. And uh, I talked about the spiders, right? You know, dangerous spiders, deadly spiders. And as soon as the light bulb gets screwed in enough that the light pops on, I look, and my feet, are about uh, four inches deep in water, and there must be 200 spiders floating on the top of them. And the walls of that shower is just clinging with spiders. <laughs> I'm thinking, whoa, deadly spiders. I, I just dived out into the floor, man, took a bump on the concrete, slid across the floor. I was like, my God, you know, <laughs> the guy looks in there, the Aussie, and he goes, Oh, mate, he goes, those are the blooming buggies or whatever, you know. <laughs> I, said, I said, are they deadly? And he says, oh, heck yes, mate. <laughs> he goes, I don't know how you kept them getting bit by something. <laughs> I was like, God almighty, man. So what a night. What a trip. It was a bad, bad experience. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, I got home, The you know, all the way back, everybody still give me the dirty looks that, I don't think anybody really forgave me for it the rest of the tour, and uh, and I owe it all to my dad. No doubt. That's great stuff, Ron. I think it's time for us to get that cold drink, sit under the learning tree with you once again, and what is today's question? Well, before we start the learning tree today, Dave, I kind of anticipate that this learning tree is going to have a lot of listeners that want to hear more on this particular subject today. You know, I want to I want to invite him if, for those that may want to. There's a super stud cast number nine that I did that the entire three hours is on wrestling riots of all different kinds. And we're going to talk about riots today in this one, you know, uh, in this particular learning tree question. And uh, just in case they want to go there and then take a listen to that, 
uh, there are a lot more riot stories. But uh, this learning tree question comes from a lady, a lady that's interested in riots. I mean, that's that to me, grasped me right off the bat. Her name is Helen Milligan. And uh, Helen, uh, you asked when fans rioted, did I think, being the booker, well, they really love this rivalry, then that I had captured them in the storyline to the point that they had become emotional, these fans. And uh, they had a physical involvement where they were ready to fight, too. So I can understand kind of what she's saying. You know, uh, you, were you happy with that? And then she asked, uh, when it happened, how did the wrestlers react to it? So and, and were they into it? You know, did they like the fact that it was a riot? And then she asked, uh, did business increase the week after you had riots? Very interesting questions. I mean, for someone that doesn't know much about this subject, it's pretty sound questions here. Great question, Miss Milligan. I got to tell you right off the bat. So your first question was, when fans rioted, did I think, or did the booker think, well, they love this rivalry and, and that well, I've captured them in my storyline here. And I got them very emotional and physically involved at this point, And uh, they're ready to fight too. You know, uh, how did I like that? Basically, I think it's what she's saying. How did I like that? Well, I don't believe any promoter in the world ever wanted to start a riot. To be quite honest with you, it's, it's not what you want to do as a wrestling promoter or certainly as an owner of a company. But before I get to answer this question, <laughs> Dave, I want to, I wanted to put a little humor in this, if there's any way possible, you know, and I don't think there's, that it's a funny subject, topic, but uh, every time I hear the word riot, it takes me back to an old comedy movie called Young Frankenstein. <laughs> and, yeah. and he creates the, a Frankenstein monster, and uh, that monster gets loose in the movie. And it's a, it's a comedy now, right? And the yeah. townspeople, they're out chasing him, and they're they're all crazy and wild and everything. And then the leader of the town kind of gets them under control, and he and he has one line that that just really I cannot forget it. When I hear the word riot, it just takes me back to that line. And he's trying to get them under control, and he says, and he's he's got this funny looking arm that you know that doesn't work right, and he says, "A riot." Is it such an ugly thing? Yes. Right. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. you know, you've probably seen that movie. Yeah. I mean, no, it's a great movie. Yeah. So it is a funny line and it's a funny movie, but you know, there's certainly nothing funny about a riot, you know? Right. So, so bad things happen in riots, you know, fans get hurt and wrestlers as well. It, it's, it's not a good thing. So let's talk about what makes riots happen. Wrestling success, it's basically based upon heels getting heat. You know, the hotter the heels, the bigger your crowds. It's pretty much, the, that's the equation. You know, the quickest way to turn a wrestling business from a loser into a winner is get some really hot and hated heels. That, that makes people want to see them get beat, and they buy the ticket to see it. You know, and the proof of that came in 1978 when I bought uh, Gulf Coast Wrestling. And Bob Armstrong and I went down there, and we proved that creating tremendous heat could ignite wrestling in a dead part of the country. That territory was dead in 1978. And when we went down, it was so dead that we had to refund fans' money, and we had to cancel matches because there wasn't enough fans there to have a match for. Gave their money back to them. You know, it was that dead. And then what we did is we cranked on the heat 
man. And six months later, through all this heels heat, business exploded down there. It was unbelievable. We we went from having to give the fans money back. There were 25 people wanting to see a match to drawing thousands in six months. I mean, it took two years in Knoxville to accomplish that, to build that type of crowd. So obviously, owning a wrestling company, you wanted to be successful. And uh, usually, great heat going to get you there. But the secret is you, you can't go too far. You never want to go too far. So the answer to the first question, you know, is uh, yes, as a booker, when you see the fans reacting the way you want them to react and anticipate it, and you see them loving the rivalry, as the lady brought up, and, and into the storyline, and emotionally involved, you know, and ready to fight, that's good. That's what you want to do. But you want it to stop right there. I mean, you don't want it to go to the right. You don't want it to go that far. But the problem was that when you sat in the dressing room before guys went to the ring and you talked about what you were going to do, you had no idea where that ride is going to start. Where does the stopping point? So you go to the ring, you have a match in mind, and each crowd is a different group. Some nights you can't hardly get them to cheer, and some nights they want to kill you. You know, <laughs> so it was, yeah, I'm, you know, this is the truth, you know. So, so wrestlers had this finish for their match when they went down, got in the ring. And by golly, they're dead set on doing their finish, uh, you know, all the way to the very end of it. And it didn't make any difference how wild the crowd got or anything else. By God, this is the finish. We're going to do it. And if you had a finish where it went beyond that boiling point to a riot point, uh, you know, the booker, probably he's the guy that figured the finish. You know, it's probably his fault because he jeopardized. He jeopardized not only the fans and the wrestlers, but he jeopardized the company as well. But I happen to own the company. So, so you know, I, sometimes I got, the, you know, and, and I, I, I love the fact that, that we had taken business from being zero to just having phenomenal houses. I, I kept wanting to build that heat. So, you know, there were times that I went too far. Panama City and that riot in this super stud cast, I get cut and hit in the head with a chair. And and I realized maybe that's what it took me to realize that you got to back off a little bit, Rod, uh, because you didn't want to jeopardize your fans. You didn't want to jeopardize your talent. And you certainly didn't want to jeopardize your company. You get a riot, there's a danger of, of injury to fan or wrestler. It's pretty darn well going to happen. So. The second question was, when a riot happened, how did the wrestlers react? Well, the reaction to a riot was based upon the riot. Every riot was different. Uh, you know, some were little bitty riots. If it's a small incident, you only got one or two fans involved, and uh, the riot's quickly over. The police grab the guy or the two, a couple of guys, and they drag them away, and the match just continues on, and nothing, nothing changes. If it's a little bit worse of a problem, it might involve a heel, kicking someone out of the ring that jumped in the ring, or maybe even worse, knocking somebody unconscious and the police drag them out of the ring. You can still probably go on with the match, wow. you know, and you do. And then, you know, that's what you did in the day. I, I have had many of those matches. I have seen it happen. And if there was an injury, it was the spectator's fault. If the spectator got into the ring of his own accord, he was responsible for his injuries. Uh, that was the law. 
You know, you could do anything you wanted to him at that point because he got no business being there. You know, he's he's put himself in that position. And some guys responded easily with those type of marks that jumped in the ring. And some guys responded viciously. You know, entering the ring as a spectator, it was never a good idea. The spectator usually became a, anyone's target. Didn't make any difference whether you were a heel or a baby face. Right. It just depended on what type of contact that person that jumped in the ring had with the heel. He's not going to go after the baby face. He's going after a heel. He's after the bad guy. Yeah. I was in a riot in Tampa. I'll give you an example. My partner was Eddie Graham. Guy jumped in the ring, and he attacked both the heels. He was a big guy, and he was, he was doing pretty good. He was throwing some punches, and he was landing some punches. And uh, Eddie grabbed him, and uh, he front-face-locked this guy, which means he grabbed him. Uh, the guy had the guy bent down in front of him. He had his head in his forearms, and he just kind of pushed his weight on him and drove him down face-first into the mat. You know, and I, and I, I tell this story sometimes, but um, it's still it's a very chilling thing. Uh, he reached in and grabbed his nostrils, and he ripped his nose partially off his face. Wow. Now, you know, that's how that wrestler reacted. And there's no legal repercussions from it. But uh, thank goodness, not all wrestlers were as nasty as Eddie Graham. Eddie Graham was just a, he was a pretty wild person, you know. So uh, let's say there's a major riot involving a ring full of spectators or a mob that's fighting heels on their way, trying to get back to the dressing room. She asked how wrestlers react. In that case, all wrestlers. I don't care whether they're baby faces or heels. They are obligated to get their asses out of that dressing room and go and help. They help those guys get back there. You know, they want to hurt the fans, but they don't want their buddies to get killed. Right. You know? And then that can happen in a riot. Their responsibility, those guys in that dressing room, to get their friends to safety. And that's the most dangerous of riots. When that happens, uh, you know, fans and wrestlers alike are damn sure going to get injured. Uh, my father got cut by a fan in a riot in Atlanta way back in the 60s. He wasn't even in the match. Heels got in trouble. He came from the dressing room, the babyface dressing room, fought his way to where the heels were, was trying to fight them. And the best way to keep from hitting somebody else was if you attacked the heels, the fans that were trying to get involved would back off because you were taking over for them. But that didn't work. Fans were so mad that somebody cut my dad from behind 55 stitches. Wow. The right side of his body, cut two rows. They stabbed him and pulled a knife oh through his God. side. The riots were dangerous. They were deadly. They were potentially deadly. So uh, some wrestlers, in the case of a riot, they reacted with fear. And others reacted with reckless abandon. I mean, some guys were just like deadly. He was out there just to don't mess with me, right? Yeah. So these type of riots, usually the big ones like that, led to multiple spectator injuries. They led to future lawsuits for the company itself. Thousands of dollars increased in the insurance premiums every year that you had to pay. It was just not a good thing. Mm -hmm. So uh, the lady asked if the wrestlers were, were into the riot, meaning enjoying it. You know, I don't think any of them hardly enjoyed it. And I, and I know 95% of them didn't enjoy a riot. There was no fun in it. You know, it was dangerous. 
And managers usually were more of a target than the wrestlers were because they had the heat, the tremendous heat. They weren't big like the wrestlers were, and fans targeted the managers. They went after the managers. Homer O'Dell, that's wrestling in Southeastern in 1976, is a prime example, and that's why he was horrified of riots because they wanted to get Homer, you know, and they'd rather jump on Homer than Tanaka, <laughs> you know, and that was pretty pretty easy to see that the who wouldn't want to take Homer on rather than Tanaka? Riots were a horrible thing, you know, and some wrestlers waited outside dressing rooms for one to happen. And there was a large majority of them that, that would do anything to keep from having a riot. So uh, they didn't want to get involved in one. So our last question, did it increase business the week after you had one? Well, sometimes, rarely. But most of the time, no, it didn't. You know, it depended on how severe the riot was. Small riot, I think sometimes fans found it almost entertaining, especially if nobody got hurt. I remember being in a riot, and a guy jumped in the ring, and he was right next to me. And as soon as he got through the ropes and stood up, I looked him in the eye, and I could see that his, his sensibilities weren't there. And, and then he all of a sudden looked back at me, and he could see he was horrified, and I said, get out. And he jumped right back out to the floor. <laughs> you <laughs> do anything, right? You know, yeah. I mean, the fans get so into it that they think they're going to do something. And they, in this case, it was simple. It was easy to stop this one. So, you know, uh, it, like I said, it depended on the severity of the, of the riot, uh, you know, and uh, crowds the following week. After you have a big riot, they're down. They're down big time, and they're down sometimes for quite a while. Panama City had that riot, the big riot with me and David Schultz, in which it took a month or more to get back to the level we were before the riot because heads of families got their kids there, and the last thing they want to do, and rightly so, is get their kids into something like that. So big riots, they scared most fans and wrestlers, especially those fans were left when it was all over, like the one in Panama, and you see fans laying in the floor, it's a horrible, horrible thing to experience. Uh, and it hurts the size of your crowd. And bottom line answer to you, Miss Milligan, uh, it does hurt your crowd when you have a rise. And they're not a good thing for anyone, fans, wrestlers, or any company. And it brings me back to the line in the movie, which is much more funny than it is uh, true. The truth is, uh, a riot is definitely an ugly thing. There's no doubt about it. Another great one, Ron. If you want to become a friend of Ron on Facebook, simply go to the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud page, and like the page. You automatically become a friend. At Twitter, find Ron at at Ron Fuller Welch. Super Studcast number 29 with the incomparable Jim Barnett is now available at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. And what about a few words about this one? Because it's really going to be good. And this is this is more information on this studcast. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, this is a tremendous studcast. I mean, super studcast, it's, uh, it's probably the best so far, for sure. Part one, uh, we're going to cover from 1949 to 1973 in Jim Barnett's life. Just about half of what he does and accomplishes. Uh, uh, and this first one, I, I got my brother Rob in there. I've got Les Thatcher. 
I've got Jimmy Golden in part one. Uh, in part two, which is going to come out on the 26th of May, Jim Cornette's in that one. David Schultz is in that one. Kevin Sullivan's in that one. Charlie Platt's in that one. The total for both these parts is four hours. Uh, never done one that long. And the content, this is really true wrestling history, undoubtedly. Jim Barnett is uh, one of the most critical figures in the history of professional wrestling. You know it's going to be good when you got that many superstars gathered around for a super studcast. So where are we headed next week, Ron? Well, we're going to finish the month of May in 1976. We're going to do the last Knoxville card in that month, and it's a very good card. And uh, so is the TV. We'll hit the highlight, the TV that's promoting it. Uh, we're going to discuss a great promotional idea I had for billboards. Uh, in just before the summer of 76, where I really wanted to pop the business in the summer of 76. And uh, I had put my owner hat on and I figured out a billboard that made history in Knoxville. Another Australian story is going to come next week, I promised, uh, as long as the Jim Barnett Super Stud cast for the next four weeks. We're going to have uh, something with an Australian story in each of them in uh, tribute to Jim. And uh, next week's Learning Tree question. Did promoters train fans to want a certain kind of wrestling or did fans demand what they wanted to see? <laughs> Pretty good one. And uh, I'd like to thank all my fans, obviously, worldwide. Everybody take care of each other out there and uh, may God bless us all. This is David Summers thanking you for joining us today and reminding you that the Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcasting Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.